Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 through 26, 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth, distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap for it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At this time, I would like to invite any children who are with us this morning to come on up and join me up front for our time together. Good morning. It's good to be with you on this first Sunday in Advent. We lit the first candle. We're marking the beginning of season that leads up to the celebration of Jesus' birth. We have various ways of working our way towards them. Jill shared wonderfully uh, how some of our children will be learning to do that beginning tonight at the Advent Family Worship. Indeed, beginning today and for the next three weeks, we have an invitation to prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus. Dr. Hilton has uh, named our sermon series, Prepare Him Room. 
And that's what we intend to do during the season of Advent, to get ready for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is, uh, Dr. Hilton has selected passages from Luke's Gospel for each of the Sundays of Advent. And although most of us are already looking ahead to the presents that will be under the tree and to the baby that will be lying in the manger, surrounded by shepherds and livestock, this season is actually about two Advents. On December 25th, we celebrate the first Advent, uh, the first coming of Jesus in the past, in humility, in the town of Bethlehem, in the hill country six miles south of Jerusalem. There is also a second, a future Advent, a second coming of Jesus, his return, not in humility or obscurity, but in glory and power. We actually affirmed that we believed this in the final stanza of our Advent affirmation of faith. You might want to look at that in the bulletin. You said you believed it. And it's true. This second Advent, this coming in glory and power, but we don't talk about it so much in the first four weeks leading up to Christmas. We may not talk about it much at all. There are quite a few churches where this is barely mentioned. Indeed, the churches where I have served over the years, for the most part, were silent on this. We focus on the first Advent because it's remarkable. And perhaps there's some reasons why we shy away from this. There's some really uh, extreme irresponsible theology that is out there in the culture that is perhaps to blame. Talking about end times, there are books, movies, tracts that portray this second coming from at one end of the spectrum to something that really looks awfully hokey to at the other end of the spectrum actually is designed to be terrifying. But historically, this first Sunday of Advent is when Christians have focused on Jesus. For most of the history of the church, this has been the case. Jesus in his second coming. And that's what Dr. Hilton has planned for us today as we begin to prepare him room on this first Sunday in Advent. Let us pray. Lord God, help us to watch and to wait, to, to be alert to what you are doing in the world, what you are doing in our lives, to what it means to long for you to come and to pray for that. Open our eyes to hear and our ears to see and to hear you today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know what your custom is when we read the scripture, but as we read it this morning, if you were following along, um, it's not all that straightforward. It's a little bit puzzling. It's part of a longer discourse in which Jesus is warning about coming persecutions. He's foretelling 
the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple. And we have to say at the outset, these are not the kind of, Bibles, uh, of Bible verses that you tend to find on refrigerator magnets in our kitchens. Um, you don't have these embroidered on wall, framed wall hangings in your living room. If you care to look in your pew Bible, you can see the larger context for the passage that's printed in our bulletin in the 21st chapter of Luke. You can find it beginning on page 856. And if you look, you'll discover that there are references to future cataclysmic events that are described with symbolic themes and imagery. Now, these themes and imageries are, are from texts that Jesus hearers originally would have been familiar with. They're written in a style called apocalyptic. We hear about apocalypse and, and, and it refers to the end of the word, but in Greek the word actually just means revelation. In fact, the last book of the Bible which is filled with this kind of apocalyptic writing is in Greek called apocalypse. It translates revelation. But that future cataclysmic events um, and the themes in the imagery, we find a lot of this in the book of Revelation. We find this as well in the Old Testament book of Daniel. But did you know that in addition to here in Luke's gospel, there is similar passages in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13. The primary characteristic of this kind of apocalyptic writing is metaphor. Metaphor, seventh grade grammar in English, word pictures, something that represents something else. So this before us in our text has picture language of the ancient world, powerful empires and events in the ancient world were in apocalyptic language described using vivid symbolic images. So. A powerful empire or an event, a great leader, sometimes is portrayed with a wild animal. Historical events were represented with natural phenomena. And that's the way that our passage in this morning's bulletin begins. Signs in the sun, moon, and stars, the roaring of the sea and the waves, earthquakes and floods. It's a way to describe what's going on in our world, but also in what Christians have, early Christians and Jews, Jewish believers thought was the case, that there were supernatural powers behind these things that what we saw was not all that was going on, that there were forces at work beyond the forces that we understand. Frequently, this kind of language is used to describe the times at the end of the world as we might know it, and to mark the beginning of a new world. Apocalyptic thinking was frequently triggered by major historical crises. For example, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is the context for Jesus using this language in our text this morning. And in the end, the purpose of this style of writing 
is to give God's people hope and to encourage them to remain faithful despite hardship and persecution, to have hope that the present pain and suffering will end, even though it may look like there is no end to it in sight. And so when Jesus talks about signs in the sun and moons and stars, he could be talking about literally that. But the phrase more likely meant that the great nations and kingdoms of the earth would soon, as we could say, be going through convulsions. Those of us who have lived a while can look back to the fall of apartheid South Africa or the end of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism. How quickly, how unexpectedly great changes swept through these massive systems with huge and unpredictable consequences. And anyone living in the Roman Empire during the decades following Jesus' death and the birth of the church could easily feel the way that this passage describes, particularly after Emperor Nero's suicide in 68. There were four emperors in quick succession, each with an army, creating strife and fighting and civil war. And during this time, Jerusalem was besieged as a rebellion was put down there. And this resulted in the destruction of the temple. This took place barely 30 years after Jesus was speaking about this very likely possibility in our text in the passage in, in verse 20, right before we get to our point. And the much vaunted Pax Romana during this time, the Roman peace, which Caesar Augustus purportedly said uh, brought the world together. Whatever it was, it was shattered. And it wasn't shattered because of an external threat from an alternative world power. It disintegrated and it collapsed from within. No one saw it coming. And it created a convulsive shudder that went throughout the known world at the time. And this is exactly what verses 25 and 26 are describing in our passage this morning. Using this language from Old Testament prophets associated with the day of the Lord. These violent changes, both natural and cosmic, will come upon humanity like a blow to the solar plexus. In our passage, it says that people will faint. If you translate the word literally from the Greek, it could even mean that they literally die from lack of breath. Because of the anxiety. Read it closely. The terror and death don't come to the world from the cataclysmic events themselves, but from the mere dread of them. Sometimes at the end of the day when I sit down to watch the evening news in the comfort of our warm living room in Bethesda, I nevertheless get a pit in my stomach when I'm confronted with what I hear and see. You know what I'm talking about. And they bring us reports and pictures and images from parts of the world where these devastating circumstances are actually happening. And you can imagine that for some in the world, 
This news is enough to make your heart stop. And when I reflect on it, I think that our times don't seem all that distant and distinct from the kind of thing that Jesus is describing here in this passage. Whether it's a geopolitical crisis, catastrophic weather event, ecological and climate disaster, I find myself increasingly longing for a reality that is altogether different from the way that the world seems to be inexorably headed. Advent's focus on the second coming of Jesus to inaugurate the fullness of God's reign, to put the world to rights, invites us to join in precisely this kind of longing, a longing for God's kingdom. It came near the first Advent, and now we long for it to come in complete fullness in the second coming. If you look at our passage, Jesus' hearers would have understood his description of the coming of the Son of Man in verse 27 as a reference to the well-known vision in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And in this chapter, uh, in this passage, the Son of Man comes on clouds of power and glory to establish an everlasting kingdom. Now there's a subtle significant difference between Daniel's vision and what Jesus says. And so if you look in verse 2 and verse 27, you see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. It's singular. It's not plural the way that it is in Daniel. Jesus changes clouds, meaning the means by which the Son of Man comes, to a representation of God himself the way that the people of Israel experience God, beginning in the wilderness, when God dwelt among his presence. And you see in Exodus chapter 40 and many other places that God's presence with humanity is signified by the pillar of cloud. Jesus is the Son of Man who will come on the cloud of God's presence. Subtle but important. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is none other than the one who is God. And so Advent invites us to look forward to this day, to wait and to watch for it. Just the way that the parable of the fig tree and all the trees encourages Jesus' followers to look at the signs, just as you see the changing seasons and you're aware that there, there is change coming, look for the signs that God might be sending of the ways that he is coming to be present among you. And so, not only then, but now, we, his followers, are encouraged to wait and to watch for him. Jesus has been responding to questions that people had about when the temple will be destroyed and when the end will come. And in his response, he concludes by turning from signs in the heavens to the concerns of daily life. Because the life of a disciple, after all is said and done, 
is not one of observation, certainly not of speculation, but of behavior and relationships. So let's look at chapter 21, verses 34 through 36. Jesus gives further instructions about how to watch and to wait. But notice, he doesn't say anything about how the Son of Man will return or when. All of the subjects that the modern mind associates with end times and the second coming, things that you may have read about in popular novels or seen in movies or other places, concepts like the millennium or the rebuilding of the temple or the battle of Armageddon or Zionism or the restoration of Israel or the state of Israel or many other things, of these things, Jesus has not a word to say. That's not how you prepare for the coming of the Son of Man. Rather, he gives us two concluding exhortations, neither of which is directed to the future. You fo to prepare for the future coming, you focus on the present. You focus on yourself. We focus on how we are living here and now. So Jesus' words in the beginning of verse 34, be on your guard, be careful. They summon Jesus' followers to watchfulness in the very areas where their inclinations might place them at risk of being caught not on the alert. He has said to them on three previous occasions in Luke's gospel, cautioned them not to be like the Pharisees in their hypocrisy or the scribes in their pretense and privilege, not to take it easy on the disciples if they sin. And if others sin who they might not be so predisposed to that if they forgive, uh, confess their sins that they should be forgiven. Usually when Jesus admonishes his disciples to be on guard, it's not in a private audience, but in the presence of many other people. And that's the case here. And so in verse 34, when Jesus warns against lives that are weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, he intends that for a wider audience. The life of unbridled indulgence and excess is scarcely the way to prepare for the coming of the Son of Man. A life of debauchery would make it impossible to watch and wait for the coming of God's Messiah. Really, a, this kind of life would only make you numb and a way to avoid it. Avoid the reality that is nevertheless coming. But Jesus adds a second kind of warning. The worries, a warning about the worries or anxieties of life. And his followers are to be on guard so that the attractions of the surrounding world not dull them. And I think that this second condition is more relevant to us this morning, even if it's a little less obvious than the carousing and intoxication warning. If you seek to follow Jesus in serious faithfulness, then we must be on our guard so that we do not become overly invested in the ways of the world. 
excessive concern for material things, if we're not watching out, these concerns can eclipse the one unsurpassable, the one of unsurpassable importance. That is, the important thing is to follow Jesus. The stores have been displaying Christmas decorations and playing carols since Halloween. Christmas movies have been airing since mid-October. Black Friday and Cyber Monday shipping hit all-time highs with over 20 billion in sales. If we're going to wait and watch for the coming of the Messiah, we've got some serious competition from the concerns of this life and the ways of the world. Richard Foster, in his best-selling book, Celebration of Discipline, observed that in contemporary society, our adversary, and by that he meant the devil, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. And if he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, Foster writes, he will rest satisfied. More. Bigger, better, faster. More, bigger, better, faster. More, bigger, better, faster. This is the rhythm of life that the surrounding culture beckons us to follow. Advent invites us to do what Dallas Willard regularly urged people, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I learned in an odd way the value of slowing down and waiting in a most unlikely place, the Universal Studios theme park in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> it was nearly 13 years ago that our family planned what would be our finally family outing to Orlando and theme parks. We stayed at a Universal Studios hotel, which is uh, a great deal because not only did we have fast passes, which meant that we could skip most of the line before you entered into the attraction, it also allowed us to go into the park an hour before general admission. And so there on our very first morning, we knew our destination the wizarding world of Harry Potter, the newest section of the park. Our two children, who are now college age, had literally grown up with Harry Potter. The first book came out when they were still in elementary school, and Harry and his friends matured at about the same rate as our son John and Christina. And as we entered the park, it was what we'd hoped. There were relatively few people, and we made a beeline for the ride. And we got there, and yes, there was no line into Hogwarts Castle to board the Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey ride. And we walked as fast as we could, and before we knew it, we were getting into this vehicle that would whisk us through the castle and up above and around, and it was all over in less than four minutes, I think. Wow. But it, so we went back and we did it again. <laughs> again, no line. Went right through. We went off to enjoy the rest of the park. 
And then later in the day, we thought, well, let's go back. And so our passes got us entry into uh, the attraction, but there was still a line. And it turns out the line takes longer than five minutes. The ride takes longer than five minutes. And it was worth the wait because as we made our way through to get into this vehicle that would whisk us around the castle, we had a tour of various rooms in Hogwarts. And there we heard from and saw from computer-generated images the central characters, Harry, Hermione, Ron, Professor Dumbledore, along with a number, they, they were all talking to us and telling us stories and things to prepare us to get ready to go on the ride so we would know what we were, were seeing. And there were lovely portrayals of artifacts from J.K. Rowling's imaginative uh, scenes created in her books. As one online reviewer puts it, ambling through Hogwarts Castle in itself is an immersive attraction. And we didn't realize it until our third time through because we finally had to slow down and wait and watch. And the ride was so much better because we finally had to wait. And so it is with Christmas. It will mean so much more if we don't hurry to get there, but we watch and we wait. In verse 34 of our passage, decadent worldly lifestyle have a way of weighing down one's heart. And the burdened or weighed down heart is numb to the signs of the time, numb to what's going on. Such a lifestyle means that the day of the coming of the Son of Man will come suddenly and unexpectedly, catching human beings like an animal in a trap. And that's why Jesus' final admonition in the last verse of our passage is to be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and thus to stand in justification before the Son of Man. Nothing in this admonition to know anything about the future, when it will happen, but to be vigilant, to persevere in the present by watching and praying. That's how we stay alert when the Son of Man comes in power to bring us our redemption. And that's the invitation of Advent, to watch, to wait, to be alert to what God is up to in the world and in our lives. And keep this in mind. Advent's an invitation. It's not a commandment. So we don't have to do it. But amid all that wants to crowd into our lives in the next four weeks, we're invited to prioritize Jesus Christ. We can do this in our daily devotions, perhaps around the, di the dining table in our families, if that's a possibility. We can join this coming Wednesday for worship in the sanctuary at Vespers. We can prioritize the next three Sundays for worship and fellowship. 
And there are numerous Advent devotionals available online in bookstores. Some of them are free. And if you do this, do this with someone else, with a friend or with your group. And finally, Advent is an invitation to take whatever worries and anxieties we have about our deepest personal concerns and longings, our greatest fears about the future, and to offer these up to God, and to do this together with others who are doing the same. Because in the words of Tish Harrison Warren, Advent is ultimately about hope which is why it is mostly about Christ coming in glory. We celebrate that Jesus entered the world in his incarnation. We find comfort in how he comes to us in our daily lives. But all of our longings meet their end in Christ coming again, when he will bring healing, peace, joy, and unimaginable wholeness in his wake. The final Return of Christ is the undoing of cancer. It is the utter dismantling of white supremacy and racism, she writes. It is the delivery of justice for the victimized, for the weakest and the most vulnerable, whom the powerful have brutalized with apparent impunity. It is the regeneration of dead coral reefs, the end of global pandemics. It is the vindication of the falsely imprisoned. It is the sound of weeping children giving way to eternal laughter. It is the death of death. This is worth waiting and watching for. Stay alert. Let us pray. Come, Lord Jesus. And find us watching and waiting and longing, actively, even now, giving our anxieties and our deepest cares and worries up to your hands so that we might know you more fully in the present. And may we, in these next three weeks, prepare room for you so that we are truly ready to celebrate the feast of Christmas. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.